Would you join me in prayer, please? Father God, we have come here this morning to worship and adore you. We have already participated in various activities. We have attended Sunday school, we have sung, we have heard the scriptures read, uh, some of us even have our pictures already taken this morning. But Lord, if we have not come and encountered the living Jesus, if we have not worshiped and adored him, then we have failed in our reason to gather this morning. And so, Lord, we pray that through the mysteries of your word that they would be revealed to us and that you would allow us to see Jesus and that in our hearts, Lord, we might be uplifted and give glory, honor, and praise that is due to him. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, this morning, we are continuing our study of Matthew chapter 13, and we've arrived here at a pivotal point, and it is an important one. And in order to explain why it is, we need to briefly review the structure of this chapter. Our author, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has presented us with eight of our Lord's parables within this chapter. Jesus delivers the first four to the masses. These parables are open for all to hear. And then in verse 36, Jesus and his disciples withdraw from those crowds where our Lord will deliver four more parables that are exclusive to his followers alone. And right in the middle of the four parables at verses 34 and 35 is an additional explanation by Matthew as to why Jesus was speaking in parables to the crowds. Now, Jesus gave his own reasons back in verses 13 through 17, and Matthew adds another here in the middle of these parables. That is what we will be dealing with today. Now, ever since we began chapter 13, I have been referencing these two verses as a reason for Jesus' parables merely by saying that the Old Testament prophecy said that Messiah would speak in parables. But G, or Matthew's placement of these two parables have, have, or these two verses here have much greater meaning than just the fact of Jesus speaking in parables alone. Now remember, I told you that the parables of the entire chapter forms a chiasm, or if you're Ryan Wolf reminding me constantly in English, it's chiasm uh, instead of chiasm. But I think I mentioned to you, I was taught by my Greek teacher that it's chiasm and it's stuck, and I keep saying it all the time. By the way, this morning I took my elder picture uh, before we began, and Ryan was taking the picture for me, and he took my picture, and then he took Brian Farouk's picture, and he said, you know, it's nice to have the contrast between the gray hair and those that don't have gray hair. <laughs> he said that aloud. Can you believe that? <laughs> Y'all pray for Ryan. He keeps forgetting that I have this microphone. <laughs> anyway, it forms a chiasm here, a chiasm if you're Ryan, a chiasm here in chapter 13. The first and the eighth illustrations pair together here as parables on fruitful lives. The second and the seventh are parables on judgment. And the third and the sixth as parables on small things. And the fourth and fifth are parables here on hidden things. And wedged in between the fourth and the fifth parables are our two verses for us this morning. Now normally when a writer employs a chiasm, they are doing so to draw attention to the middle part. It's the most important thought that is being conveyed. And I think that is what Matthew, our author, is doing here. He just told us how Jesus taught how the kingdom of God, though hidden 
hidden in plain sight will transform everything. And then the next parable spoken by Jesus to his disciples after he explains the parable of the weeds in verse 44 is about discovering hidden treasure. And I believe that Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has conscientiously inserted this prophecy from Psalm 78 about how God will give parables that will reveal what has been hidden. The mysteries of God's plans will be made known to the elect. And this, in turn, will reveal God's chosen servant who will lead the people like King David of old. Now, this would be the figure that the Old Testament prophets referred to as the Messiah or the anointed one. Translated in Greek, the word Messiah is Christ. The anointed one is the person that has been consecrated by God and set apart to deliver his people. Now, this isn't so shocking to us because we've been studying this book for over a year. But to a first century Jew, this is an utterly bold concept. Matthew is communicating to his readers, Jesus is the Messiah. And this is the most important part. That fact makes this the central idea of the chapter. He is revealing to his readers, the one you have been seeking is here. Here is our righteous king, hidden right here in sight of our own people. To a Jew, this would have been abundantly stunning. So I have three choices here about how to proceed. One, I could just merely state the facts that I just did and move on to the next parable. Or, since Matthew quotes from Psalm 78, I could exposit that entire psalm so that you can understand why our author uses it. Or, I could try to immerse you a little in the concept of Messiah so you can have some comprehension of the awe that a first century Jew would feel at what Matthew just revealed. Well, I guess you can tell by now that my conscience won't let me go with the first option. So this morning, I briefly want to cover a combination of the latter two. So we're going to briefly look at Psalm 78 and then look at a few passages concerning the Messiah and hopefully behold the treasure of Jesus our King. And my goal in doing so is that you're going to have one of those exhilarating moments when the light of Scripture just dawns on you and you see the glory of Jesus and you just adore him more and more. So if you will, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 78. Now we're going to look at the entirety of it. So you're going to need to actually open up your Bibles. You'll need more than just the first eight verses that are in your worship guide. This is found on page 488 of your pew Bible. Now, when you read this psalm all the way through, it's not until you kind of have a high overview observation that you understand how the author Asaph could be considered a prophet by Matthew. If you were just to thumb through the Psalms and you came across number 78, you might wonder why the author talks about parables at all. In fact, you might assume that he is actually speaking plainly. Psalm 78, verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. And here is the parable, which turns out to be events that have already occurred. I will utter dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell, to the com- tell them to the coming generation of the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might, and the wonders that he has done. The parables here are deeds and wonders that Yahweh, the faithful God, has already done for his people. Now remember, a parable is a comparison of two different 
objects in order to teach a spiritual truth. And in verses 5 through 8, we read how the Lord established his covenant with the Jews and how he commanded them to teach his laws and his past actions to future generations. And this psalm covers the events between Moses all the way up to King David. And despite his graciousness to the people and this recurring testimony, his people continued to disobey him. Asaph begins to recount the many ways that God blessed and delivered Israel. How he did wonders when they were captives in Egypt. How they crossed the Red Sea, leading them through the wilderness with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Feeding them manna from heaven. And yet, in verse 17, they still sinned against God and doubted him. They wanted meat rather than manna, so God gave them over to their fleshly desires. They gorged themselves until they were sick and dying. Then they say, well, we repent, in verse 35. But they didn't really mean it. Their hearts did not match their professions of faithfulness. And despite that, God still offered grace to them. And starting in verse 42, Asaph states, the people should have remembered the miraculous things Yahweh did in Egypt with the plagues and how he led them out of slavery in Egypt all the way up to the promised land and how the Lord drove out the pagan nations that were living there. God established them as a nation with abundant blessings. And yet we learn in verse 56 here that despite all of those blessings, the people still rebelled. They still chose to worship false idols over the God that delivered them and established them. And so God removed his hand of protection and their enemies routed them. And then finally, we learn that, that God raised up a new leader from the tribe of Judah, a man that would shepherd his people, and the Lord would choose King David as his servant to do this. And Asaph concludes about David here in verse 72, with upright heart he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. So the question that naturally arises is, is in what way is this recounting of Israel's history a parable? What is the hidden meaning? Well, with a biblical theology, we can see those events in Israel's history foreshadowing the coming of Jesus. The people's hearts were fickle towards God. They could not maintain a righteous standing before him. They could not maintain his standard of holiness. And their history was a parable for our present need like the need to be delivered from the captivity of Egypt. They needed to be rescued from their slavery of sin. They needed a righteous king, a Davidic-like figure who would shepherd them with an upright heart. All of Israel's history revealed how they could not maintain a covenantal relationship with God. They needed a new mediator to intervene on their behalf, a new Moses, a new David. And by employing Psalm 78, Matthew is telling us, he is here. He is here. This is the shepherd that will guide us. The one that, speaking his parables, is revealing himself to us. So with that explanation of the text, let's see if we can capture some of the gravity of what this would have communicated to a first century Jew. How did the Old Testament portray this coming figure? How did the prophecies describe the coming Messiah? And again, let me ask you to just to hold on to your hats here. Because I'm going to do a quick flyby of some of these passages. I promise you, I'm not going to do justice to them because we don't have time to look at all the detail. 
But like a car wash, you're going to get the basic option rather than the VIP here, all right? You won't have any of the detailing, but it will get the job done for now, all right? Many of the concepts within these passages are going to overlap. But if you can engage yourself, if you can do so within the next 15 minutes, while it may not cover all the details of the prophecies, I hope it's going to do justice here to Matthew chapter 13. Now, the overall concept of the Messiah was not revealed in just one single text. It's an idea that became more concrete over time in progressive revelation. Now, we could point to its origin beginning in Genesis chapter 3 when God prophesied that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. But over a period of 3,000 years, this coming figure and his role within the world would become more crystallized, particularly as a sinning people began to see their overall need. And the picture that is formed becomes almost mythic. It would be impossible for any normal human being to fulfill all of these prophecies, to do all that is said and required of him. Now, traditionally, the Messiah was seen fulfilling three offices on behalf of the nation. He was to be a great prophet and a great priest and a great king. Messiah was unique in that he would be able to hold and perform all three of these functions simultaneously. So let me just briefly cover those. Moses predicted in Deuteronomy 18.15 that Yahweh would raise up a prophet as great as he, and this prophet would speak on behalf of the Lord. The prophet spoke the words of God. And in the Old Testament, prophets were considered to be the enforcers of the covenant. Whenever the people sinned and they stepped outside of God's boundaries, God would use a prophet to call the people to repentance. And in that calling, there would be predictions of blessings if the people turned from their wickedness or a pronouncement of curses if they stubbornly refused. Too often, those pronouncements became the predictions as the people continued to violate God's laws. And the prophet's words were proven true as consequences that came to pass. But especially, Messiah would be a prophet whom, the God, whom God's spirit would rest upon and whom would conduct miracles to prove his authority. And he would usher in the new day of the Lord. So listen to the first three verses here of Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may all be called oaks of righteousness, righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And of course, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus read that very prophecy after his baptism, and he said, today, the scriptures have been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was the prophet greater than Moses that was spoken of on behalf of the Lord. And he speaks the words of the Lord. But Messiah was seen to be more than just a prophet. He was also a priest. And priests were to teach and preach the law as well as ensure that the religious rites of the nation were being conducted appropriately. We've already saw in Psalm 78 how Messiah was to be a teacher as he shares and explains his parables. But he would teach the law in a spectacularly new way. As priest, he would inaugurate a new covenant. He would write the law of God 
on the hearts of his people. Jeremiah 31, 31 tells us, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. This priest would ensure that God's laws would emanate from the inside to the outside of a person, much like leaven or yeast does to bread. But not only were the priests responsible for teaching the people the law, they were also the mediators for the people when they sinned against the holiness of God and deserved his wrath. They were the ones that would take the sacrifices of the people and offer them to the Lord to atone for sin. But this new priest, the messianic priest, would personally offer himself to atone for sin. He would mediate the new covenant with God by taking the wrath of the Lord upon his own body. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And then just a few verses later in the same chapter, in verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul... He shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This priest would not only mediate the sacrifice, but he would be the sacrifice. And finally, the concept of Messiah was most connected to the bloodline of David. One like David that would come, that would be a conquering king, that would unite all the people and vanquish Israel's enemies. And as the messianic king, he would be God's ruling representative over the earth. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, listen to this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That is Messiah's name. The Lord is our righteousness. He is the one who saves us by his righteousness. And as ruler, he would execute perfect justice. Isaiah says of him in chapter 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's David's bloodline. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall be at rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. The wicked will have every reason to fear under this great king's rule. And the righteous will be at perfect peace. Messiah was to be the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate king. And no figure in Israel's history had been able to fulfill all three offices since before the fall. But these are not the only qualities of the Messiah. The the Old Testament assigns several other attributes to him. Let me just quickly offer four of these that would have been in the forefront of a pious Jew's mind. First, Messiah would be known as a servant to his people. 
Messiah would be known as a servant to his people. Matthew already alluded to this back in chapter 11 concerning Jesus' healing ministry when he quotes from Isaiah 42. This is from Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 7. Behold, my servant whom I have uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Listen to this part. He's going to be a gentle servant. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. Messiah would enjoy serving his beloved people gently, healing them and freeing them from captivity. Second, we're told that Messiah would be used to redeem the Lord's people completely. Messiah would be used to redeem the Lord's people completely. Jeremiah 31 goes on to say, For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud at the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young flock and the herd. And their life shall be like watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Yahweh's people would be bought with a price and never suffer slavery ever again because Messiah would redeem them. Third, Messiah would be inclusive. His ministry would be inclusive. God says of him in Isaiah 49, verse 6, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Not just the bloodline of Abraham will be saved, but members of all the nations on the earth can be saved through the actions of the Messiah. He can draw every tongue, every tribe, and every nation to himself. And finally... Maybe most astonishing is that the Messiah would somehow be divine. David alludes to this in Psalm 110. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Someone greater than David gets the position of prestige at the right hand of the throne of God who will receive the adoration and the worship of the world. In Psalm 2, God calls the Messiah his son. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14 states, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, that is the Son of Man, and to him was given dominion 
and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This figure is given all authority that belongs only to God. That must mean he is divine. Otherwise, God would be violating his first and second commandment by granting this to him. The Messiah would be the divine son of God. So let's put all this together. To sum this up, in the Jewish mind, they were looking for a figure of epic proportions. Huge. They were looking for a prophetic, priestly, serving, redeeming, inclusive, divine king. Who could possibly do such a thing? Who could write the law of God on the hearts of sinful man? Who could personally not only mediate on behalf of sinners, but also receive the full weight of God's wrath upon his shoulders? Who could rule with perfect justice? Who from from such lofty heights would get on his knees to bind the wounds and, and heal the souls and get on the ground and play with children? Who would open the doors of heaven so wide that anyone in the whole wide world who believes in him and comes to him could enter in? The answer, according to Matthew, when he inserts these two verses here, are the Messiah. And good news, Jesus is the Messiah. That's what Matthew is trying to communicate to us. He is the transforming leaven. He is the treasure that's worth everything you possess. He is the seed that grows into a kingdom. He's the pearl of great price. He saves the good grain and he saves the good fish. He is the seed that produces good fruit and the treasure that you pull out of the scriptures. And his name is Jesus. In Hebrew, Yeshua means Yahweh saves. And he is the one whom the angel told Joseph back in Matthew chapter 1, verses 21, or verse 21, he will save his people from their sin. Not maybe save his people, not might could save his people, not could save his people, not possibly could save his people, not probably will save his people, not most likely, not perhaps, he will save his people from their sins. So Matthew can't help himself. Perhaps we might say he is compelled He is compelled, he must insert these two verses so his readers can see the grandeur of his Savior. It's so beautiful. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And what has been hidden has now been revealed. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the one whom you come and you kneel down before and you cast all of your burdens of your sin before him knowing that he is the only one that can remove it. And you put your faith and you put your trust in him. You give him all the glory, all the adoration because he is your king. Join me in prayer. Oh, Lord, let us through your word see Jesus (laughs) If we can see Jesus, then all other things will just fade away. Nothing else will seem more important to us if we know you have removed the veil so that we can see our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Remind us, Lord, of all that he has accomplished in order to remove the stain of sin, Lord, and that he is our king who has come in glory and will come once again in glory to bring his church to our full redemption, to our full consummation of that redemption, where we get to dwell with him and with you forever, and we will be known as your people, and you will forever be known as our God. May Jesus receive all of our praise. We pray this in his finished work alone. Amen.